Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Kenega. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to our fourth conversation with Dr. Carlos Ayer and our third with him regarding the Reformation period of history. Ayer is a Yale professor who's written a book called Reformations, and this time around we'll talk about cooperation between church and state in governing, the government helping the deserving poor, Charles V's days of hunting down Protestants before going fishing for the rest of his life, and how different political ideologues see their own passions and causes in aspects of this time period. In Zurich, you had this situation where the government and the church were, it seemed like, at least the way you describe it, they were overseeing each other somehow. So can you explain how that worked or did it work? Were there any conflicts or problems or one trying to bully each other, so to speak? Well, it depends on what time you're looking at. And the time I'm familiar with, which is the 16th century, I don't know of much sort of wrestling between church and state, but it is a fact that the church, although it was much more intrusive in people's lives when the city became Protestant, the number of clergy was reduced by an incredible percentage. So there were fewer clerics and they were overseeing, with the help of the state, they were overseeing the lives of citizens much more closely than the Catholic Church ever had. And they developed very early on this uh, marriage court that that, uh, handled troubled marriages. And that was a cooperation between church and state. So there there were instances of, you know, great cooperation. But of course, you know, on on minor things, there there, there were probably some disagreements that I I just have not encountered because I haven't been looking for them. Right. Uh, But every textbook I had in high school in college used the word theocracy to describe what was going on in Zurich, which since the 1970s has been corrected. Because, you know, theocracy means that, you know, the clerics are really running the state. But that's been corrected. You know, it was a symbiosis uh, between church and state. It wasn't a theocracy. It's not like the church took over completely. But you did have to be uh, a good Christian or else you'd get hauled in for breaking the rules. So they were enforcing by law certain, I won't say matters of faith, but here in, I think, the Western world, we recognize that lying is bad, but we can't, we don't always uh, put people in jail for it or people being hateful. That's probably a better example. Right. Uh, although people are trying to put people in jail for being hateful. but So they didn't make a distinction back then. Well, and not only that, uh, you know, the, there was only one church in Zurich, right? And, and there, there could be no other. Mm-hmm. So when the Anabaptists in Zurich, which is where Anabaptism had its, its birth, when the Anabaptists started um, not baptizing their children and baptizing each other as adults, that didn't fly. Uh, they were... They were immediately persecuted and uh, run out of town, basically. 
and some were killed. The very first Protestant killed by Protestants was Felix Mats, uh, a young man in Zurich who was part of the Anabaptist church. The interesting thing about the Anabaptists is that um, all the leaders of the church that became the Anabaptist church, you know, and they claimed that nowhere in the Bible the, is there any mention of any infant being baptized. So therefore, you know, the church needs to be a church of believers who are baptized as, you know, reasoning adults. That didn't fly for many reasons, but chiefly because it would mean that you would have people in Zurich who didn't belong to any church because they never got touched by the spirit, right, so to speak, uh-huh. and were never baptized. And that just would not fly. You know, you had to have a Christian commonwealth where everybody belonged to the church. But the interesting thing is that the leaders of this movement had all been followers of Zwingli, and they had been the ones who spearheaded the movement to get rid of the images. But then they turned on Zwingli, right. and he would not uh, put up with them any way, shape, or form. Another thing you bring up, and I, I can't help but you know see our some of our modern problems in some of these stories in the past and uh, you talk about where the government in Zurich was helping the poor. I think a lot of people have a real cynical view when it comes to government quote-unquote helping anybody because it becomes corrupted, it becomes a voting block scheme at times. But it seemed like, again by your description in the book, these guys already had a sense that certain people were deserving and certain people were not. Yeah. Yes. So can you talk about the system and how it worked as far as we know? Sure, sure. Now, this is a, a big change that takes place in the 16th century, and it's not just in Zurich. It's everywhere, and it's not just Protestants. Cities begin to grow, so therefore you have more problems with poverty. You also have an enormous problem with vagrants who go from city to city, right? Beggars, vagrants, homeless people. So sort of what we're seeing in this country, right? So it became necessary, and and this is uh, kind of universal in the 16th century, in cities and towns all over, regardless of their religion. Systems are put in place to identify those who are truly needy, who can't work because they're injured or sick, or, you know, their house burned down and people didn't have insurance back then. So um, going along with that is the sense that every location, every locale, every city, every town needs to take care of its own first. So these vagrants uh, and homeless who wander from town to town begging and are truly like they're, they're, they're rootless. They, they don't even have a hometown. There's no place for them in the system. You know, it's, it's local. But the big difference between Protestants and Catholics is that Protestants make what we call welfare, the business of the state, right? It's a state-run thing. And the alms are taken from taxes. So you're taxed. You're a citizen in Zurich. You're getting taxed, and part of that goes to the poor. In Catholic countries... Although there is some state involvement in poor relief, most of it is carried out by the church. And the church has, it's like an octopus, right? It has many different 
tentacles or branches. And many of, of the charitable organizations in Catholic cities are run by lay people. They're like, let's say, the equivalent of, you know, the Lions Club, the Kiwanis, <laughs> the confraternities. They, they collect the money, they're alms. So something funny happened in Spain as an example of how, what, what could happen. In Spain, King Philip II in the 16th century tried to make welfare more of a state-run enterprise. And throughout Spain, these men and women, but mostly men who belonged to confraternities, who ran hospitals, they ran uh, orphanages, they ran the equivalent of soup kitchens, you know, homes for uh, restoring uh, prostitutes back to a normal life and so on. Anyway, they were very upset because the state was taking away their chance to be charitable. Right. <laughs> Taxes don't count. And so this was the Catholic argument, right? If you're being taxed and everybody's being taxed, you're not actually giving anything to the poor. It's the government, it's not you. So there's this very nice, I think it's very interesting twist of what happens with welfare reform in Catholic countries is that mostly it's the lay people, not the church led by the clerics, but it's the lay people who want to have, keep, not have, they want to keep their hand, right? in there helping the poor directly. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, Catholic theology, when, when you give alms, you're scoring points with God. Sure. Right. Right? So it's works righteousness, as Luther would say. Right. So Protestants don't, don't go for that. But Catholics are very upset that their, their salvation was being imperiled by turning welfare into a tax rather than charity. Yeah. It's very, but... The methods set up for taking care of the poor are more or less the same across the board. The poor have to be identified as deserving, right? They don't want any, I think it's Australians came up with this term, uh, layabout. They don't want any layabouts uh, collecting alms. In England, they passed the poor laws, for instance. Many places pass poor laws, but I know in England, if you showed up in a town and started begging and you didn't have the basically the document or the card or the chip sometimes they gave little medals or coins that identified you as deserving poor you could be whipped and run out of town wow so that took care of the homeless problem but no one that i know has written about what happened to the truly homeless Mm -hmm. and poor right who had no place to go because many of these wandering poor uh, came were, were rural. They weren't townspeople. They had been peasants, and something had gone wrong. But there was no system of charity that extended out to the peasants in the countryside, at least not after a, a, a certain perimeter around a town or a city. There are many areas that weren't covered by charity because mm-hmm. they were just too rural. Something you said about the Catholics in Spain getting upset about losing their, I guess you almost put it their choice in the matter or their ability to uh, sacrifice on their own without coercion. But it reminds me a little bit, and this comes up so many times about in America, the American church 
losing its identity and having this kind of like, what do we do now once in the government started to take over those roles, for example, mm-hmm. and, uh, maybe starting with the Great Depression and the welfare system, and then especially after the Great Society you know, of Lyndon Johnson's. And you see a church trying to figure out, so like, what do we do now? You know, and so it ends up creating some more problems. It it sure is. And, you know, if you think about it, in in all the big cities, there were hospitals run by churches. Mm. You know, I think especially the Presbyterians and Methodists uh, had hospitals. Catholics definitely had hospitals. And um, one by one, they've all sort of been, you know, secularized. Right. But the church did did used to involve itself in in such things, and, orphanages too. Yeah, and the synagogues also. You still see yeah. some uh, Jewish hospitals, at least Jewish right. in name. I'm not sure if they are still ran by actual Jewish yep. people. You talked about how Zwingli, you know, he was a hero for a minute, and then some of his followers became more radical. Then you point out how he, he, at times he was more tempered or, or patient. He had this line about he was eager to submit the Reformation to public debates. Now, was this because he was confident that what he thought was true would win out in the end? Or did he think, like, I know like in the Jews have this tradition, especially the Pharisees did, where they would debate about everything, and they thought from the debates they could find the truth. Did he believe in consensus? I don't think it was a question of consensus for him. It was more, uh, you know, especially when he was trying to turn the city around and abolish the Catholic Church. Those debates, they were very carefully orchestrated mm. and, and the panels were loaded, you know. It was all very carefully planned. But once they were established, well, you know, they did have uh, regular meetings of the clergy who, who met to basically... Bible discussion, and they would uh, have very, you know, deep discussions about interpretation of biblical texts. But I'm sure if anybody had come up with something that didn't seem correct, right, there was no room for that to gain consensus. And as long as Zwingli was in charge, and then the, the man who took over after him, Bullinger, also the same, you know, there were no major changes made to any of the theology because it was set in stone and it was deemed to be the correct interpretation of the Bible. My colleague here, Bruce Gordon, knows a lot more about these uh, Bible discussions than I do. So I don't know if they had disagreements, what those disagreements were. But like, for instance, um, on the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Zwingli and Luther had very different views. And Zwingli wouldn't budge and Luther would not budge. Luther believed in real presence. Uh, he didn't believe that the bread ceased being bread like Catholics do. You know, oh, it's not bread anymore. You know, it looks like bread, but it's not really bread. Right. Luther said, yeah, you know, forget about that. But Christ is really present. Mm-hmm. Swingley said, no way. He cannot be physically present. He just cannot be physically present. For the reason is, Jesus has a human body. And his body went up to heaven. And a human body cannot be in two places at the same time. So Luther kept saying to him, Zwingli, you're being too mathematical. And then Luther would say, well, you know, Jesus said 
take this and eat it. This is my body. And then Zwingli would answer back with something like, oh, yeah? Well, you know, Jesus also said, I am the vine, you are the branches. <laughs> yeah. Luther, you're so stupid, you don't understand metaphor, right? But they never could agree on that. Right. And it's the reason, I mean, if I could take one step back, the reason they were meeting Luther and Zwingli and all of their supporters meeting in one room in 1529 was that the Protestant Lutheran prince, Philip of Hesse, put them in that room so they could agree on everything and establish a common military alliance so they could take on Charles V. But it never came to the pass. That's why you ended up with Lutheran and Reformed. They agreed on 13 points at that meeting. The one point they could not agree on was the Eucharist. back to uh, Luther, if you don't mind, uh, or the Protestants in general. I feel sure. like the last couple episodes, I kind of bagged on Luther maybe a little bit because, he, again, his language was so harsh. <laughs> but again, you, to put him in context, the heat gets turned on on the, on the Protestants, especially during his time. But even before then, we, we talked a little bit about some of these guys who tried to reform the church and at least one or maybe more got burned at the stake. I mean, what a you know terrible world they must have lived in. And I can see why they wouldn't spare any words. It was very, very dangerous to buck the system. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine how much danger someone could put himself in simply by saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm not happy with this. This is not right. Heresy was a capital offense. Heretics, uh, generally, no matter where you were, uh, heretics were executed. And the same thing happened, uh, you know, after the Protestants took over places, they still burned heretics. I mean, the most uh, famous case is Michael Servetus, who was burnt alive in Geneva because he denied the Trinity. It wasn't tolerated. Dissent was not tolerated. More often than not, people could escape just simply by moving somewhere else, assuming another identity. There are many Protestant heretics, right, who kept living in Protestant communities, but weren't executed because they kept moving around. One of these is uh, Sebastian Frank, who was um, a radical Anabaptist. He kept moving around. He never got executed. But many other Anabaptists ended up being executed. But moving around and having no visible means of support, I mean, that's, it's a torture in itself. Yeah, well, I know one of the professions that Sebastian Frank engaged in was making soap. Wow. <laughs> he was a soap maker for a while. And that's how he managed to make a living. You know, he certainly couldn't become, he didn't want, actually, Sebastian Frank didn't even want to establish a church. He, he became so radical, he called the Bible the paper pope. He, he said, uh, I'm not a Catholic, I'm not a Lutheran, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm not an Anabaptist, you know, I am what I am. It's a preview of what 
uh, an enlightenment person like Thomas Paine would end up saying, mm -hmm. my church is my own mind or something like that, right. you know, basically. Uh, you don't need a church, you know, you yourself can have direct access to, to the divine. This idea that you don't need the church, the Catholics would point to as the ultimate uh, endpoint of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. If you start chipping away at one thing, then you're chipping away at two things, three things, four things, and before you know it, you don't have a trinity, you don't have communion, you don't even have a church. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the story uh, where things get worse for the Protestants for a time there. Charles V, he puts a, together an army to snuff out what are seen as satanic heretics. So talk about how that played out. Like how far did he get? Did he actually kill a bunch of people? Or His, his armies were um, composed of not just German princes helping him, but the reason he got his act together finally is that he— he got enough German princes to agree to go to war against the Protestants. And they, they won a decisive battle, and they routed the Protestants. And I don't know about number of people killed in the war, but certainly the Protestant princes were not executed because they were nobility. But what happened was it was a, a very short-lived victory because then the Protestant princes got their act together and they defeated Charles' army at Mühlberg, and Charles had to run from the battlefield or gallop, gallop, because he was on a horse. He galloped all his, his all the way to Austria, which was kind of nearby, and it was his territory because he was Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, but Charles had to run with his tail between his legs. And actually, what happened is that uh, after that defeat, even though he was only in his fifties. Charles abdicated, gave up the throne, and he gave half of his possessions to his son, Philip, who got Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, and the Americas. And his brother, Ferdinand, got Austria and the Holy Roman Empire. And then he, Charles V, retired to a monastery. And for about a, he spent about a year and a half, um, you know, praying with the monks, fishing. <laughs> And rehearsing his own funeral. <laughs> and here's the, the ironic part about the fishing is that they built a special pond near the monastery, you know, well stocked with fish. Uh -huh. Charles died of malaria. Oh, from the pond. The, mosquito, the, the pond bread is where the mosquitoes bred. Oh, my. Because it's a semi-desert region of Spain, right? Uh -huh. Not your typical... Uh, landscape for malaria so he just gave up he just gave up kind of like um have we seen this recently yeah well you know pope benedict XVI abdicated and um actually the king of spain juan carlos uh abdicated and just gave a throne to his his son now who is now philip the sixth so it does happen do we know if charles v was depressed or did he feel like he was oh, a yeah, failure he was, okay he was heartbroken by this defeat whether it's what caused him to give up the throne or not. And there were other factors. He suffered from gout, and he was always in terrible pain from gout. And none of these people had a healthy diet. The higher up the social scale, the more meat you ate, right? I forget what the exact amount was, but I once read how many pounds of meat Philip II, King of Spain, ate per day. 
and it was just some astounding number of pounds of of meat so you know they got gout they got other kinds of problems they didn't know any better i guess I had said, I think, on the very first episode that some people view the Reformation as a progress towards, an imperfect progress towards, you know, breaking up monopolies, these great powers. In this case, you know, the Catholic Church had become the, the big monolith. But on the flip side of that, the criticism, and I hear this often from Catholics, is that the Reformation made Christianity splintered and chaotic. And right. it seemed like everybody and their dog started their own denomination based on their personal revelations, air quotes. Then you even have these riots and what at times looked kind of like mob rule. And, and Luther himself would, it seemed like he got out of his control and he would condemn a lot of this stuff. Many placed the, the blood on his hands, you know, like, hey, you started this, you know. Talk about that view that it just caused a bunch of chaos. Fairly recently, like in the last 15 years or so, there's been some attention, a lot of attention paid to the question of whether or not the Protestant Reformation ushered in secularism, right? That all this fragmentation is what eventually secularized the world. And the debate goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, so a historian at Notre Dame, Brad Gregory, who calls um, what happened as a result of the Protestant Reformation uh, hyperpluralism, right? This hyperpluralism is just, as you said, a splintering, a fragmentation that just kept fragmenting, kind of like branches on a tree, right? The branches turn into other branches, and and before you know it, there are too many churches, each of them claiming to be the true church. Right. So that makes it difficult for believers to be able to counter the arguments of pure rationalists, even atheists, right, who, who say, well, you know, if you're claiming the truth, how come so many other people are claiming to have the same truth and, and still be the true church? It's a loss of face, let's put it that way, that Christianity uh, goes through versus secularism. But there are many other things at work in this time period that, that make secularism a good option for some people. And a good example is what happens in the Netherlands, right? The Netherlands was became officially Calvinist, but it was the only place where you had genuine toleration. Not toleration in our sense of, you know, uh, complete religious freedom as we have here in the United States. Um, for instance, in the Netherlands, the farther north you went, the more solidly Protestant the communities were. The farther south you went, the more Catholics you would find. So you could be a Catholic in the Netherlands. You just couldn't have a church, a building. So you had to meet in some house, and you couldn't go in through the front door. You had to go in through the back door. But you could still be Catholic and go to Mass. You could still be an Anabaptist, right? Same thing, but you couldn't have a building, a church. The only churches in the Netherlands were Dutch Reformed Church. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, you didn't have to join the church. 
in the Netherlands. So there are many Calvinists who are not church members, but attended church. Now, the question is, why would anybody not want to become a church member? Because if you are a church member, then you're subject to church discipline. So the Netherlands became a very tolerant place. Jews, too, could have synagogues. They, they could have synagogues, actually. And one way of looking at it, and, and it has been argued by several historians, I think very convincingly, is that when you have a mixed religious population like this, you have to be able to conduct business. Are you not going to sell your fish to Anabaptists? If your neighborhood is full of Anabaptists, right? And your story, oh, no, I can't sell you any fish. You're an Anabaptist. You know, it's business as usual made it necessary for the Dutch to be tolerant. And I think there's a lot that that argument is very convincing, immensely convincing, because uh, in a tightly knit, tightly enclosed country like the Netherlands, which was also for 80 years at war with Spain, trying to gain its independence from Spain, right? You can't afford not to be, literally, you cannot afford not to be tolerant. And um, that's where the, that's where I see the so-called hyper-pluralism leading to secularism. Because then it's not quite Thomas Paine, my own mind is my church, right? But religion becomes uh, something private. It's something that the individual can choose for himself or herself or for himself, herself, or her, or the family as a whole, right? And it becomes a matter of choice. Religion becomes a matter of choice, which is what then here in, in the United States became one of the more important parts of the framework of the Constitution. And it's very interesting, uh, in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's grave behind his home, Monticello, it lists all his accomplishments. Not included in those accomplishments is being president of the United States. <laughs> but top of the list is, you know, he, he was the, 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 the leader of having the Virginia statute on religious freedom, mm-hmm. was Jefferson's work. And that's high up there on the list of accomplishments in his, on his tombstone. No, it's, it's, a, it's like an obelisk. Right. It's, it's a huge monument. But, yeah, no. Um, founder of the University of Virginia, signer of the Declaration of Independence, blah, 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 but not president. That's not on there. All right. <laughs> well, to bring up something similar to what you're saying about having pluralistic societies basically forces toleration. I think about the United States after the Civil War, uh, a lot of people are arguing that the thing that will erase racism is the color green, you know, money. And even like, I think in one case with the that would end up being Plessy versus Ferguson, you had the train car companies who didn't want segregation because that would mean they would have to make separate right. cars and it's more expensive. They wanted integration and the government, you know, the, the democratic governments at those times forced it on them. You wonder what a country we would live in today had that not happened, where the, the governments were forcing people to be segregated or forcing racism, basically. Yep. Um, you know, and it led to many um, inequities, mm-hmm. right? The Dutch, you know, think about the steps that it wasn't a straight line to toleration, even in the Netherlands. The Dutch had their own version of segregation by not allowing other Christians to have their own churches. Sure. I can't remember until what century that was in place. I think probably the 19th century. 
Um, but it worked, right? It was a, an interim step on the way to full-blown toleration. If you need to live in a community that has many people who disagree with you, and you're a business person, <laughs> you can't afford to do away with them. Uh, you know, the German the Nazis did this, right? They, 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 they didn't want Jews having uh, any kind of normal relations with Germans. And they closed down their shops and they wouldn't let them go to certain stores and so on and so forth. But they were a tiny minority. You can do that if you have a tiny minority and not be affected financially. But it's, it's impossible not to be affected when you have this hyper-pluralism. Just how I keep mentioning that people today see certain bits of themselves in the Reformation. I guess we could say that we've already touched on how some of the libertarians or conservatives see a progress toward their point of view. But then, strangely enough, the Marxists, as you point out in your book, they see a little bit of themselves in the Reformation. And when I read that, I was like, really? And, of course, you explain it in the book why they would see that. Yeah, well, they only see part of the Reformation as as their predecessors are some of the radical Anabaptists, especially one in particular, Thomas Munzer, who, um, well, the East Germans ended up putting his face on the five-mark bill. (laughs) If you were uh, being educated in East Germany or anywhere else in the communist world, the Reformation was not about Luther, Zwingli, or any of these other so-called magisterial reformers because they relied on magistrates, that is, the secular rulers, for their existence. No, that's not the real Reformation. The real Reformation is what the East Germans called the early bourgeois revolution. And it's, it's, its pinnacle, its crisis point, was the Peasants' Revolt of 1524-1525. And Münzer became a leader of some of the peasant groups, and Münzer actually died on the battlefield fighting against the landlords. Uh But Münzer was so radical that uh, he was uh, uh, convinced that he was living in the end times. So did Luther. But Münzer became convinced that Jesus would not return to earth until the, and this is what he called, the separated people into the godly and the ungodly until the, Jesus would not return until the godly wiped out the ungodly. So basically human beings were in charge of preparing the way for Jesus' return when all private property would be abolished. Hmm. That's the kingdom of heaven, no property. Basically what you have in monasticism, but instead it's the whole world becomes like a monastery. There's no private property. That's why the Marxists loved Munzer. Right, uh, because not only was he uh, a proto-communist, he was also convinced that the struggle against the propertyed people, who were the ungodly, that that struggle was 
essential, right? So it's very Marxist, it's uh, very communist. Mm -hmm. But then you have this other group uh, of Anabaptists, the Hutterites, who also practiced communal farming. They were communists just like the same way that monasteries were communist. And they're still around, the Hutterites, and they're actually very successful farmers. Uh, in Western Canada, there are a lot of Hutterites um, who came there from Russia because the Hutterites kept moving farther and farther east, ended up in Russia, and then they came in the 19th, 20th century here to the United States and Canada. But in the Western Canadian provinces, I read an article, this is like 20 years ago, I don't know if it's still true or not, but they were so successful, these Hutterites, that they kept running all their neighbor farmers out of business <laughs> and just kept acquiring their huh. neighbor's land and farming more and more acreage and making a successful go at it. And they were, no one owned that property privately. It was all held in common and the work was shared. It still is. Very successful. Um, but the Marxists don't like the Hutterites because well, they're missing that second thing about the struggle and, you know, killing the ungodly right. and so on. Well, I've heard Marxists around me criticize the Reformation uh, as inventing capitalism and also the, the work ethic. It's still being argued. Max uh, Weber and Ernest Trilch had a lot to do with coming up with this idea that Protestantism not only brought about secularism, but, you know, capitalism. I think it's hard to find people now who would agree with that thesis about capitalism being produced, especially by Calvinism. Uh, the argument was that, you know, Calvinists, because they believed in predestination, had to look for signs of predestination, of being actually, you know, chosen by God and, you know, being successful with one of those signs. And that, you know, instead of buying a 65-room mansion for yourself, what you did is you took that money, not to create a, you know, a palace for yourself, but reinvest it to make more money, right? And, and use some of that for charity, right? But basically just keep reinvesting the money and don't live high off, off the hog. That argument, I think, falls apart very easily. There are many, many other things that were going on before Protestants came along that were the seedbed for capitalism. And you have capitalism among Catholics too. Mm -hmm. So there might be some ways in which capitalism can be linked to Protestantism, especially in a place like Netherlands. But generally, no, I don't think uh, that, that that is there. You can attribute also, um, you know, secularism, capitalism and um, something else that gets uh, attributed to the Reformation is precisely this uh, sort of social conscience, the development of what uh, in the 19th century would really blossom, especially in, in American Protestantism, of the social gospel. Yes, I think you can draw lines, you can connect dots, but it's not the only reason that these things came into existence. Mm -hmm. Last question, this may be a little bit silly, but if they were to make an Indiana Jones film about Indiana Jones looking for some lost artifact from the Reformation, what would you have it be? Holy smokes. That's a good one. 
what would I want? Is there a lost text? Is there some lost figurine or some map? I mean, some petrified hand? One, you know, I think maybe I I would like to have some hat. Because all the reformers, you see their portraits? (laughs) They they have their portraits painted. They're always wearing a hat of some kind, (laughs) right? Yeah. And I once uh, went to a conference where um, one of the world's leading Calvin experts, uh, John Leith, was retiring. And they, they, they gave him a Calvin hat that had been made by some theater company, right? Oh. That made historical things. Uh-huh. And it was a perfect Calvin hat. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been kind of jealous about those hats. Uh, Erasmus wore the same kind of hat. Uh-huh. Luther wore a very, very similar hat. Those, those would be nice. The one one relic I have not seen in person is um, in Zurich, in the museum, in what museum in Zurich, they have the sword and the helmet that Zwingli took to the Battle of Kappel. Oh, wow. Now, he had never been a soldier, ever. So he, he, he was not a swordsman. But they have, they have his sword and his helmet on display, which were recovered from the battlefield. I think that is the ultimate Reformation relic. We have a Reformation relic here at Yale in the rare book library. We have the prayer book used by Thomas More when he was in the Tower of London. And it has his annotations in the margins. It, according to Catholic theology, that is a contact relic. It, it shouldn't be in a library. <laughs> it, it belongs in a reliquary. Because, you know, that, that was him. He touched that book. He wrote in that book. Was it, there anything he wrote in there that gave some insight into him? Yeah, yeah. I've looked at a couple of them. You know, it's just uh, he's, he's reading in, into his devotional text his own situation. And, you know, it's all about resignation and, you know, doing what is right, basically. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody's uh, – I don't think they've – published a facsimile edition. There might be one, you know, I just haven't looked for it, but there might be a facsimile digitized uh, yeah. version available. I'll look for that now after after talking to you. Now I'm just, you know, being, maybe I should see if there is one. If not, uh, I should ask the people at Beinecke Library to act, digitize this thing for heaven's sakes. Yeah. It'd be interesting if he had wrote in the margins, like, as soon as I get out of this place, the first thing I'm going to do... <laughs> And then, then frowny face. Yeah. Well, I occasionally take students in to see these Reformation uh, books that we have. And one student uh, a few years ago was just so in awe of that relic. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, you could tell it had just hit him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very affected by being in the presence of this. And he wouldn't get too close to it either. Uh-huh. On the Catholic side, there there are so many relics. You know, I'll take any of them. I wouldn't mind having something from a contact relic. I wouldn't want a body part kind of relic, right. you know, but uh, <laughs> something touched by Ignatius Loyola or uh, Teresa of Avila. Uh-huh. Which, uh, which you wrote a book about, right? Right. I wrote the history of her autobiography, how that book came to be, uh-huh. what's in it, and how it's been interpreted since it was published. Uh, Princeton University Press has a series called The Lives of Great Religious Books. And this is just part of a series. There are all other kinds of 
religious books in there, including specific books of the Bible. Like there's a whole book on the book of Job. There's another one on the Dead Sea Scrolls, huh. Book of Mormon. Uh, and then, you know, some books in Asian religion, right. books in Judaism and Christian books too. There's one on Calvin's Institutes. If you're still in a Dr. Air mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 250 a listen, where the man tells the story of his childhood, especially in regards to the communist takeover of Cuba and his subsequent flight to America. And if you're still pondering how charity can help without hurting the intended targets, check out episode 215, where Peggy Gardner of Greater Faith Community Action Corporation shares both stories of failures and successes in working with the poor and drug addicted, in addition to telling about the time she crashed a KKK meeting and ended up becoming friends with a few of the hooded members. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.